KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, it's Black History Month, and we'll speak with historian Barbara Ransby about Joe Biden and the recent history of Black America. Also later in the show, Ella Taylor will review the new Russian film Dear Comrades. It's about a massacre of striking workers there in 1962. And we'll talk about its significance today in view of the recent massive protests there in support of Alexei Navalny. But first, today's Washington politics update. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, number one on our agenda today, of course, is the pandemic relief bill that Biden has proposed, $1.9 trillion. It includes a $1,400 stimulus checks to top off the $600, making $2,000, plus extended unemployment aid and hundreds of billions of dollars for local and state government, for schools, for vaccinations, and the healthcare system, lots more. And a group of Republican senators met with Biden, seeking to persuade him to cut it to $800 million. In normal times, if one side wanted $1.9 trillion and the other side wanted $800 million, they'd split the difference and, and we'd get $1.4 trillion. Is that what's going to happen here? No. Biden has been under uh, two conflicting uh, sources, both of pressure and of impulses, personal impulses. One is to uh, you know, be bipartisan and a conciliator or at least have the appearance thereof. And two is to not make the mistake that the Obama administration made in 2009, which was respond to a crisis, but in an underfunded way, which merely perpetuated the crisis. So I think meeting with the 10 Republican senators was a way to show uh, a conciliatory impulse but I don't think uh, that's going to be reflected in the actual legislation or the process of enacting it. I, I'm pretty convinced that Biden and uh, Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi in the House and most, uh, if not all, Democrats on Capitol Hill are committed to the $1.9 trillion and they're going to go ahead uh, and uh, appropriate it, uh, beginning uh, with a vote through the budget reconciliation process, which enables them to enact it uh, with merely 51 votes, not the 60 that a, a normal uh, filibuster subject uh, process would require. I think there'll be one uh, modification of that uh, 1.9 trillion stimulus though, which is that responding to some centrist criticism the eligibility level for the full $2,000 uh, will be heightened somewhat so that uh, genuinely affluent people will not be able to uh, receive it or will receive smaller amounts. I, I have a question about this. I, I know that Republicans and even some centrist Democrats have argued that it's wrong to give government aid to affluent Americans who do not need it. But what about the millions in tax cuts for affluent Americans who didn't need it? Absolutely. Of course, the Democrats didn't support that. But be that as it may, it, it, is, a, it is a matter of Republican hypocrisy to have raised that as an issue. Uh, but I think Americans who are not affluent will still get the full $2,000. Now, they've already gotten 600 so that means they'll get 1400 But the full $1.9 trillion will, will go through. Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, says he won't vote for a federal minimum wage of $15 as part of the pandemic relief bill. Does that kill the $15 federal minimum wage? It pretty much kills it in this package. It doesn't mean that the Democrats can't bring it back as a uh, separate measure, or perhaps the more intriguing option, would Joe Manchin vote for it 
if that were lowered, let's say, to $13 or $12. Remember, the federal minimum wage today is only $7.25. $12 would be still a massive increase for those Americans toiling in states that haven't raised the minimum wage uh, by themselves, which is about half the states. You know, that would still be progress. So I, I think those are the two alternative courses uh, that Joe Manchin in his uh, sort of crazy, whatever that is, has inflicted on the party. Uh, They can either do it separately or they can, you know, see if he's amenable to a somewhat lower dollar figure. Of course, there are so many poor people in West Virginia, whence Joe Manchin comes and whom he represents, it's, uh, it's a wacko position for a Democrat, but uh, that doesn't mean Joe Manchin isn't uh, somewhat wacko. Second big topic, <clears throat> impeachment. Trump's second trial in the Senate, this time on charges of inciting an insurrection, starts next Tuesday. I heard he's had some trouble with his lawyers. The, the day before the defense briefs were due, they all quit. Yeah, that that uh, that's par for the course, given the, the course that Trump wants to follow, which is to turn it into a relitigation of the election. Uh, of course, if they were to argue, uh, stand on the floor of the Senate and argue that the election was uh, wrongly decided and that Trump was was uh, correct in making that case, uh, in, in an odd way, I think that would help the prosecution. Uh, so the lawyers uh, that he uh, had hired uh, through the uh, intercession of Lindsey Graham, these are South Carolina lawyers, they quit. And so he got to uh, a, a couple lawyers with some, some questionable defenses on their resumes. And there's been conflicting accounts in um, uh, the news as to whether this will be an, still be an element in, in the, their defense of Trump. Politico said it will be. Uh, some other reports say it won't be. It, it's hard to see how any lawyer who wants to get Trump off would actually make that argument. What they may make the argument, which is, you know, just almost as bizarre, is that since we don't really know who won the election, uh, it was okay for Trump to raise this issue. But, you know, you have to accept the premise that we don't really know who won the election, which is, uh, you know, I mean, are are Senate Republicans going to be asked to acquit Trump with that as one of the bases of their position? It it, uh, augurs to be an interesting trial. And presumably, the House uh, Democratic prosecutors have assembled some really telling videos of both what Trump said and of some of the insurrectionists who uh, went into the Capitol saying that it was Trump who inspired them. So that should have, if not an effect on the Republican senators, some effect on that portion of the viewing public, which is not, as the phrase goes, uh, epistemologically closed. Moving right along. Uh, Third big topic, the Republican Party. We are speaking on Wednesday morning here. Will Republicans in the House punish Marjorie Taylor Greene for being a loony conspiracy theorist, or will they punish Liz Cheney for voting to impeach Trump for inciting insurrection? Well, as we uh, uh, talk, John, the uh, House Republican Caucus has not yet uh, decided on Liz Cheney. They did offer uh, the Democrats what they called a compromise, which was taking uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene off the Education and Labor Committee. Uh, some people think that because she thought the Newtown and the Parkland massacre of students were really just staged events, that she might not be the ideal uh, member of the Education Committee. Uh, but they wanted to have her appointed uh, to another committee to compensate. And apparently House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who is a man of limited intellectual and moral resources, who feels completely stuck uh, in, 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 these, uh, in these issues, uh, called Democratic House Majority Leader Steeny Hoyer to propose this. And Hoyer told him to hell with it. 
And instead, they are going, uh, the House Democrats are going to put uh, a measure uh, on the floor of the House uh, tomorrow, as we speak, Thursday, to uh, kick Marjorie Taylor Greene off committees, which compels the Republicans to vote yes or no on this. Do they uh, want to go to the wall defending a uh, dangerous lunatic who was, you know, uh, called for shooting Nancy Pelosi, among other things, and uh, said that the Rothschilds uh, are somehow responsible for laser beams that started the California fires, an interesting contention, um, no doubt, uh, getting interesting reception in the various firehouses of the nation. Um, uh, do, do they want to align with her or against her? In other words, in her own crazy way, Marjorie Taylor Greene has become a huge wedge issue in the Republican Party. Over in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell and a number of Republican senators have basically called for the House Republicans to uh, throw her off these committees uh, by themselves, that they think she's nutty was a phrase, a word that Mitch McConnell used, and uh, a, a real detriment to Republicans' electoral uh, processes. Now, senators, of course, don't shape their own districts. Generally, the House Republicans uh, uh, are there in part because uh, they represent heavily gerrymandered districts where, you know, they're not going to be defeated by Democrats. And they could fear a Trumpian primary challenge if they don't stick with Marjorie Taylor Greene. So it's it's really uh, a huge wedge issue within the Republican Party determining if it's merely, you know, racist and rancid conservative on the one hand, or racist, rancid, conservative, delusional, and conspiratorial, and, de- and you know, violence prone on the other hand. So that's the, uh, those are the two elements uh, of the Republican Party, and we'll see which shall prevail. Harold Meyerson, readamitprospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. In Joe Biden's first speech as president-elect, he promised black America that he would have their backs. Now he needs to take prompt action to fulfill that pledge. For comment, we turn to Barbara Ransby. She's a historian, writer, and longtime political activist. She's a distinguished professor of African-American studies, gender and women's studies, and history at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she directs the campus-wide social justice initiative. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. And she's best known as the author of the award-winning biography, Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision. Her most recent book is Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. We reached her today at home in Chicago. Barbara Ransby, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, John. Well, before we talk about Biden's first 100 days, I'd like to spend just a minute on the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. The FBI and the police have arrested just under 100 people as of uh, today. We're taping this on Tuesday, charged, you know, with participation in the insurrection that tried to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden as the winner of the Electoral College. But when Black Lives Matter protests filled the streets of Washington last June, D.C. police arrested more than three times as many people. There were 316 people arrested on June 1st. This is from CNN, which also points out that many of the insurrectionists arrested after January 6th had less serious charges than the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrators. I wonder if you had any comment on this difference and and on the difference between the Black Lives Matter protests in D.C. and what happened at the Capitol. Right. And I'm, I, thank you for that question. Um, of course, I have comment on that. Um, you know, I, I'm glad you said what happened at the at the, the U.S. Capitol, because it, I, I don't want to even call it a protest. Um, I think it was a, a white nationalist attempted coup. 
some people have dismissed it because of the kind of buffoonery of some of the participants, but, but often coups and insurrections of all type have many different parts and moving parts. So I think it was a very serious um, action uh, fueled by white nationalism. And I think, you know, we see the racism in law enforcement at the local level, at the national level, um, et cetera, in terms of disparity and treatment. I mean, clearly what we're finding out about what happened on January 6th is that in some ways it was uh, an inside job that, that they had, the, the insurrectionists had um, inside information. There were these tours that were given the day before January 6th, which were, had to have been authorized by a member of Congress. Um, we know that police from around the country participated. We know that there have been um, allegations of racism in the ranks of the Capitol Police for some time now. So uh, all of this makes it a very different phenomenon than people protesting systemic racism uh, in the streets of cities around the country and, and in the capital. We, you know, we can overgeneralize sometimes and create these false symmetries, you know, people in the street. Well, why are they in the street? What are they doing? What are they demanding? What recourse do they have? So, um, so I don't even wanna put the events in the same category except to show this contrast. Um, you know, and a lot more to say about that in terms of how serious that threat is because in some ways it is a response to millions of people, including millions of white people, uh, in the street protesting white supremacy and racism the previous spring and summer. So um, this is a reaction to that, a fear that a rising movement that envisions a different future um, is about to, to take something away from what some of these people feel they have. So Biden's first 100 days. What's at the top of your list of priorities for black America? Should it be doing something about the police who killed George, started all this by killing George Floyd in my hometown of Minneapolis and then Breonna Taylor in Louisville and Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta and so many other people whose names we remember now? Yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, race is at the heart of so much that's wrong with this country. And I, I would add, you know, what I call racial capitalism, what many people call racial capitalism, uh, that is that nexus between um, economic disenfranchisement and racism. So clearly, uh, uh, Biden has to step forward with a very forceful uh, agenda for combating racism, racism in the police, racism in education, uh, racism that permeates uh, major institutions of our, of our society. And then there's an economic agenda. And, you know, he has said that he's going to devote $1.9 trillion to, uh, to various kinds of programs. And sadly, that may not be enough. Um, because I think the, the issue of wealth disparity, which is also color coded, um, is so obscene, so severe, uh, that we need a massive uh, infusion of resources, creations of jobs, debt relief, infrastructure development that can, in fact, create uh, jobs, you know, the Green New Deal, and what my colleague Colette Pichon-Battle calls the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, which is a new deal that makes sure to uh, include um, often disenfranchised communities of color. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, those, those are some of the things at the top of my list, but I think it's going to be a process, you know, um, one of the things that I, I wrote in the, the article in The Nation about the first 100 days is that we also need to uh, take movement building and civil society building as seriously as we take electoral work. And it's not to um, disparage or minimize electoral work, obviously critically important, but we also need to, you know, we need to fight the hearts and minds battle. If, if, if last week showed anything, it's that. You know, the 70 million people that voted for Trump, you can't arrest all them. You can't cite all them. Uh, they weren't all there in the Capitol, by the way, you know, thank goodness. But there are a lot of people who have been fooled, seduced, coerced, manipulated, um, had a spell put on them uh, by this maniacal uh, political uh, figure. And so we need, to, we need to be about undoing that on many different levels. So uh, let's talk about some um, specifics in the new issue of The Nation, you talk about things Biden can do immediately through executive action without having to get a bill through Congress. The most obvious one is student debt. Uh, the word as of today is that Biden is ordering the pausing of student debt payments. This is not exactly what you had in mind. Uh, not what I had in mind, not what, uh, you know, the 
tens of thousands. And, and I know you, I think you've had Astra Taylor on your program and, and yes. the people uh, who, uh, um, who do work on, on the Debt Collective, which is a very, very important campaign and we shouldn't undermine it. The, it is so morally indefensible. I'm a, I'm a college professor. So at an at a urban public university where I have a very diverse student body, and, you know, I'm ashamed that that uh, universities, colleges and universities take so much money from students and that the government doesn't see this as a worthwhile investment um, and that so many of my students have to go so deeply in debt. So that should be a top priority. It should be a cancellation of the debt. Um, and, 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 and there shouldn't be a compromise about it. I mean, what is the other side of that argument? I, I just don't understand it. So, yeah, I think that should be really important. And of course, you know, again, to, to bring race back into this, because I, you know, I like to remind my friends on the left that we don't have a class analysis over here and a race analysis over here. They are intimately bound up with one another. So even when we look at something like the debt, student debt, uh, disproportionately African-American uh, students are taking out more debt. They don't have family wealth. They don't have other options. Uh, the debt often, you know, the loans often subsidize uh, families that have no resources and so forth. So, um, so a part of a racial justice agenda is also a part of a debt relief uh, agenda. In the nation, you remind us that the movement for Black Lives laid out a set of principles to combat racism, something they called the Breathe Act. To me, one of the most impressive things about Black Lives Matter is the way they've been able to combine protest and politics. Millions of people in the streets, but it's not just to be in the streets. They also support candidates and they propose legislation, policies, which they then pressure Congress to do something about. The Breathe Act is one of them. I think a lot of our of our listeners and readers don't know about this. Tell, tell us about the Breathe Act. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the Breathe Act came out of the policy uh, table, the policy committee, uh, of the Movement for Black Lives. And it is a really, it's, it's a mock piece of legislation to be uh, used in different contexts. So, you know, it talks about moving toward divesting from police and investing in communities, understanding some of the root causes uh, of violence in our community, some of the root causes of, uh, uh, of various behaviors that might be labeled criminal is, you know, is economics, right? And so investment in our communities, investment in our schools, um, is a part of what that bill calls for. It calls for mental health uh, intervention and resources, which is much, much needed. I mean, so many of the cases of police violence have been cases that required a social worker and some compassion and somebody who could talk, uh, you know, could deescalate um, a situation. And the others, um, you know, involve people who are economically vulnerable. You know, when you think of some of the high profile cases of you know, Eric Garner selling loose cigarettes to subsidize family income or, um, you know, another person who was selling CDs out of the back of his car, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or even um, George Floyd, who was suspected of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. We don't know that he was doing that, but he was living an economically vulnerable life. So the Breathe Act tries to take those economic realities into consideration, um, as well as moving toward radically rethinking safety uh, and security. And I have to say, it's not just about um, a, a, an omnibus bill, an omnibus bill at the uh, federal level, but it's also about taking parts of the Breathe Act and applying them to state legislatures. We just had a victory here in Illinois where it looks like we're going to eliminate cash bail, which is a major victory and was a major part uh, of the Breathe Act and some of the Local activists that I work here uh, work with here, um, Rich Wallace, who works with an organization called uh, Equity and Transformation, uh, people in the informal economy, was very instrumental in in getting that to one of our progressive uh, state legislators. So, um, so yeah, so that's uh, you know just some snippets from from the Breathe Act, but um, the Vision for Black Lives was another document that addressed many many progressive policies. And these are not policies where, you know, people are demanding just make things better for black people. These are policies that will make things better for everybody. Uh, and so because black people are often left out, it's saying center black communities. And, and in doing that, you know, um, it, it will have a far reaching effect. So your piece in The Nation was written before the Trump mob storming of the Capitol. 
Um, you argue there that uh, we need to return to the streets in a show of strength and unity, wearing masks, uh, uh, of course. And you're right, we should fill the streets in D.C. and throughout the country to remind Biden that the millions who elected him expect to see policies that will improve the lives not only of working people of color, but of everyone. How and when do you think we should return to the streets, especially in, in view of the possibility that we have learned about since January 6th of facing off with the same people who stormed the Capitol, who, as you have said, one of their fundamental motivations is white power. Well, I don't think we can, you know, we, we, we can't shrink and, and hide from this, right? Um, in major struggles all over the world against authoritarian rule and dictatorships, I mean, the biggest enemy is fear. And if people say, oh, my God, these are violent people, they, I, can't, I can't go to a demonstration because there might be some sort of retaliation. I mean, I think we should have security. I think we should be careful. I think we should, you know, plan our tactics uh, uh, and our logistics very, very uh, responsibly. But the, when we get to the point where we're afraid to go out of our house for a rally or a vigil or a demonstration in support of justice uh, against injustice, then we've already lost the battle. We have already lost the battle. You know, I talked to my, uh, I have some very dear friends from Uruguay who, um, you know, lived under the dictatorship there. And they said, you know, the dictatorship took five years to gel, you know, and in that time, there were literally fights in the streets between, you know, progressive students and leftist students and, you know, right-wing uh, supporters uh, of, of, of the, the opposition movement. That was true in Hitler's Germany. That was certainly true in, in Italy before Mussolini. So, you know, we know that um, intimidation, fear, and bullying uh, of those of us who are uh, opposed to uh, authoritarianism, opposed to fascism in any form, um, we we know that that kind of challenge is going to be there. But I say, you know, they are many. They are uh, many, but we are more, and I think that's important. So I can't say they are few and we are many. They are many, but we are more. Um, and uh, and I think you know, standing together and standing uh, resolute is very important. I would love to see a massive demonstration, a massive filling of the streets with a very, very different message, with a very, very different vibe on the anniversary of King's assassination, which is uh, April 4th, uh, because King died fighting alongside um, sanitation workers, people who were you know, doing some of the dangerous, dirty work in Memphis. And he marched with them and uh, he understood that connection between the racial justice fight and the economic justice fight. So uh, I think it will be very symbolic, you know, thinking of his unfinished agenda of fighting militarism, poverty, and racism. You know, if we had um, a show of strength from those of us with a more hopeful vision. They are many, but we are more. Barbara Ransby, she wrote about how Biden can support Black America and why we should fill the streets to remind him that millions who elected him expect to see policies that will improve our lives. You can read her piece at thenation.com. Barbara Ransby, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk again with our TV critic, Ella Taylor, who covers TV in the age of the virus for us. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Well, today we want to talk about Dear Comrades. It's a Russian drama based on a real event, a massacre of striking workers in 1962 in a remote provincial town. This, of course, is the post-Stalin Khrushchev era. It was kept secret for 30 years, and the word first reached us, at least, in Solzhenitsyn's 
Gulag Archipelago, uh, he says 70 or 80 people uh, were killed. The official investigations of the 90s concluded that 26 were killed and 87 were wounded. It's quite an amazing movie. It is, yes. Um, uh, you know, it's it's written and directed by Andrei Konchalovsky, the well-known uh, Russian director, uh, written actually with um, Elena Kiselyeva. And uh, he is, incidentally, also the brother of the director Nikita Mikhalkov, um, best known in this country for the movie Burnt by the Sun, which I believe won Best Foreign Film. This is a candidate for, it's Russia's candidate for Best Foreign Film, which, given the events of this week, seems utterly astonishing um, because it is a drama, but with heavy doses of satire in it. Uh, and as you say, it's about this food riot um, and strike in 1962 in the uh, provincial town of Novocherkask, which resulted in a massacre. And it tells that story strikingly through the point of from the point of view of a party official not a victim of the massacre although in fact in many ways she is a victim she's played by Konchalovsky's wife Yulia Visotskaya very well um, she is a devoted party official who greatly misses Stalin if you can imagine such a thing <laughs> um, and uh, is not very impressed with Khrushchev, but nonetheless, she does her job zealously, which means that um, she gets lots of uh, food products ahead of time, um, and her corruption is laced with extreme uh, rectitude, uh, not to mention incompetence. What we see is the unfolding of the crisis um, but in particular, the emphasis is, is not so much on the victims, though there are some very stirring uh, and unsettling scenes of violence, but the corruption and incompetence of A, the local party officials, B, the national officials, C, the military, and of course, uh, no conflict in Russia would be complete without the KGB. And all of these are fighting amongst themselves. Large numbers of them continue to take kickbacks in the form of smoked salmon and vodka and, and so on ahead of the masses. Unfortunately for them, the masses are ahead of them because uh, they've, they've actually, they occupy the municipal uh, building, they break windows and so on. It turns out that the woman party official makes a key mistake at the beginning of calling loudly in a meeting for the execution of uh, those who are rioting. And right after she says that, she pretty much claps her hand to her mouth and, and realizes that she's going to actually have to go through <laughs> with some of that. At the same time as her young daughter, teenage daughter, who is one of the rebels, vanishes in the wake of the massacre itself. So there are three generations in this family. There's the mother and the daughter who are at odds partly because of the, the different politics, but also because the daughter's a teenager. Um, and the mother's father um, is somebody who fought in World War II and uh, beyond and is well aware of the contradictions of dictatorship. Now, I the other day I was reading an article um, by another Russian, much less famous than Alexei Navalny, who was also poisoned, uh, I can't remember if it was the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, in which he, he pointed out that dictatorships fall less because of their opponents than because of the mistakes they make. <laughs> and that's what this film is really about. The totally, the, the botched attempts to deal with this crisis, the way it so easily degenerated into a terrible massacre, and the complete disarray um, of all the different agencies that are trying to deal with it. That part is the satire because some of it has a, a real black, com you know, black comedy. 
um, aspect to it. Konchalovsky, who has made some Hollywood films as well, like Runaway Train, he can tread with a heavy foot. By the way, his, the reason I mentioned his brother um, is because his brother is an ardent, what we would call a right-wing nationalist, and was a member of parliament. So they are not on very good terms. Konchalovsky is a, definitely a leftist a contrarian as far as uh, the former Soviet Union is concerned. And he often treads with rather a heavy foot when he makes his films. And there are occasional um, things. It's, it is, though, however, shot in black and white, uh, like a 60s Soviet film uh, in a very realistic way. And the, the very last words of the film surely have to be a satire on um, the workerist endings, uh, heroic endings of so many Soviet films. But this is an extremely gripping film. And obviously, um, it has implications. It's all about, you know, the mistakes. It was covered up, as you said, from until the 1990s when they lodged a, an investigation. Um, and it, it really is how um, it's about how you in the dictatorships succeed very well in the short run, but they don't succeed at all well in the long run. And given what's been going on this week with the pro protests of very brave people in Russia, and uh, today the uh, Alexei Navalny was sentenced to two years in, in prison, which probably is not the way to go for Putin, sitting there in his not my palace, um, <laughs> because he's just going to make a martyr out of uh, Navalny and it's hoped that that will increase the opposition. Of course, the, the film was nominated as the, Soviet, the, the Russian entry into the Academy Awards long before Navalny returned to Russia. At the time, they must have, I mean, I thought, you know, why are they nominating this? It also won an award at Venice. It, it is about the incompetence and corruption of communism and also the murderous repression of workers, uh, you know, shows the, 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 the undermining of, of what communist claims to being the worker state. So I, I think the Putin regime can, can proudly hold up this film as an example of the evils of communism, not realizing the way it's going to look to us, you know, this week and, and next week. I want to talk also just for a minute about watching this film. We know that this massacre is coming and it's shot in the most amazing way. You know, we think of the film as, as you say, shot in the old Soviet style. We think of like, you know, the famous Eisenstein montage of close-ups of the faces of noble workers struggling. Nothing like that. The entire massacre is shot, a stationary camera inside a beauty salon where a couple of our heroes have taken refuge and we see everything outside the windows of the beauty salon and it's just sort of a blur of people running past and chaos in the, in the streets it's it's an amazing way to shoot this kind of event it's socialist realism <laughs> yeah um and uh, the, I, the i asked myself the question that you raised just now as well you know how could they possibly offer this film i'm glad they did uh, for best foreign film and the only answer i could come up with you know as with many chinese films as well that get past the censors is that very often the people who are in charge of, of uh, evaluating the ratings, as it were, of these films are not film people. And they clearly took it at face value and did not understand that this was a film about the rulers, not the ruled. <laughs> yeah. So, dear comrades, uh, where is it possible to see this now? Well, actually, in a lot of places for a while, it was uncertain we would see them anywhere, but in these illusory theatres that they keep talking about. Um, but now you can see it on Apple TV iTunes. In other words, you don't have to have Apple TV Plus, Amazon, Fandango, Google, Google Play and others. So if we want to see something completely different from a historical drama about the real events of massacres of striking Russians during the Khrushchev era, what can you recommend? Well, if you have HBO Max, you can see a very peculiar documentary about a very peculiar topic, which is uh, social influences. 
Um, it's directed by Nick Bilton, who is a former journalist, um, but it's notable that the executive producer is Graydon Carter, later Vanity Fair, which is no stranger to celebrities and Hollywood itself. <laughs> um, and this is a kind of very perky quasi-documentary um, in which uh, they choose three asp aspirants to social influencer. And the way you become anointed as social influencer is by having one million followers. So what they do is they set up a team of hairdressers, stylists, publicists, et cetera, et cetera, lawyers, to enable these three to become to try to become social influencers and get their one million following. It's mentioned very much in passing. I barely caught it that there are all kinds of social influencers, some of whom we should like. For example, Greta Thunberg is a social influencer and um, uh, there are many others, but that sweeps by in about two seconds and we settle on these three uh, very ordinary people, one young woman, um, a, a young gay man and a young black man um, who are, you know, trying to desperately to get these followers and they tart them up in, you know, with haircuts and makeup and training and, and so on. Fred Wiseman would lift his hands in horror <laughs> at this encouragement from the documentary filmmaker, of course. Uh, any verite documentarian is not going to like this. But it's pretty, it throws up some pretty fascinating details. Almost all the people who are trying to be social influencers uh, describe themselves as models or actors, whereas, you know, those descriptions are very loose, shall we say. <laughs> In fact, they are would-be would entrepreneurs um, and also, and also would-be celebrities who are in it to some degree for the fame, and they want, they're quite clear that they want to be famous for being famous. I blame the Kardashians. Um, and the, the really appalling thing is that, A, they're very nice young people, and B, that they think that that's a worthy goal, to be famous for being famous. So it's all about money because as the team sort of makes them over into uh, media personalities, um, it become, they, they start getting sponsorships and freebies, and, of course, they show them all on, uh, to their followers. The kick, the kicker in this is that the followers are mostly fake. They are bots, and you can buy bots by the pound, apparently. <laughs> Why don't we do that? <laughs> we could have a million followers for our show. Well, we do in India, apparently, from <laughs> after last week. <laughs> um, the, but, of course, you know, there's something incredibly sad about all of this, especially as whether they are successful or whether they fail, and of course they've very carefully chosen to succeed and fail and modeled that way, all three of them begin to feel uneasy about what's been accomplished or not, not being accomplished, including the young woman who is the most successful at them. And I think that they are, you know, their underlying un unease, although they don't articulate it this way, is, is, you know, what happens now that I've got my one million fake followers? They have to live for the rest of their lives with the knowledge that, like all cheaters, <laughs> they won their prize without actually earning anything. And the, uh, the movie strangely put me in mind of uh, a film, that, a documentary that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that is Assassins, about the two young women who essentially murdered Kim, Kim Jong-il's brother, is that the way they were recruited was precisely in pursuit of, of uh, money and fame. And that this has become so pervasive amongst, you know, great, gobs of young people all over the world, I don't think necessarily um, reflects so badly on the young people as on our education systems that has made them so uncritical of the goal itself, let alone the, the means of achieving them. If you met these three, you really get to like them over the course of the movie and also to feel very sorry for them. 
um, because at the ripe old age of 25 or 23, in one case, I think 28, they have quote unquote achieved a goal that wasn't worth pursuing in the first place. It's well, a terrible movie, but I learned all <laughs> kinds of things. In it. <laughs> yeah, I, I had some serious doubts about the factual basis uh, uh, of the film. This guy, Nick Bilton, says uh, there are over 140 million people on Instagram who have more than 100,000 followers. I'm sure that is not true. 140 million people is, you know, uh, half the a third of the population of the United States. You know, if you look at if you look at the numbers of followers on Instagram, it's something like 0.3% have more than 100,000. That would mean you'd need about 14 billion people on earth. So I think that's the, that claim is extremely unlikely. He also says the number one career choice of young Americans is influencer. I don't know where he got that. I I googled it on on the famous uh, uh, internet, and what kids say about their career wishes were number one doctor, number two lawyer, number three business manager. They want to you know make money in stable careers. So that left me wondering about the the rest of his claims here. I think it's really hyped to a ridiculous. Degree, and you're right. The kids are very interesting and and sympathetic characters, and they are good examples of people who want to be famous for being famous. But how broad this is as a social phenomenon, I have my doubts. Well, uh, you know, where I teach at USC, we have two rather famous social influences, although they didn't get to be famous the way they wanted to. Their mother is a famous actress who, a somewhat famous actress who went. Um, to jail for a total, <laughs> paltry total of two months um, because she tried to buy uh, their way into, into college. Uh, the thing is that, I mean, of course, you can manufacture numbers anyway, and he does emphasize in the thing that, that you know, if you can buy fake bots by the pound, then you can probably buy social influencers by the pound as well. And he claims somewhere to have worked for the New York Times. I don't know whether that's true. But if it is, he's having a very strange trajectory <laughs> to his career. And for Graydon Carter, you know, I mean, it's kind of what you expect, because it's a continuation. And Vanity Fair has some very good people writing for them. Um, but they're absolutely obsessed with celebrity, and they have their annual Hollywood uh, cover and so on, and I'm not sure that he sees much irony in any of this. So that's Fake Famous on HBO Max. We also talked about Dear Comrades, the Russian historical drama, which is on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and other platforms. Those are our films for this week. Ella Taylor, thanks again for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I had lots of fun talking to you. Finally, we want to remember Rennie Davis. He died on February 2nd at his home outside Boulder, Colorado. He was 80. He was probably the New Left's most talented organizer, starting out as a community organizer in Chicago with SDS, Students for Democratic Society, in the mid-60s. And then he became one of the leaders of the anti-war movement with the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. In 1967, at the height of the Vietnam War, Rennie, along with Tom Hayden, became some of the first Americans to travel to Hanoi. They returned in time for the March on the Pentagon. Then they set out to organize a massive anti-war protest at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. He hoped for hundreds of thousands of protesters, but only 10 or 15,000 people showed up after Chicago's Mayor Daley made it clear that the Chicago police would do everything they could to stop the marchers. And indeed, what happened there was later called a police riot by the commission that investigated it. Rennie and seven other protest leaders were then charged with federal crimes by the new Nixon administration and put on trial in Chicago. Those events are back with us this season in the film Trial of the Chicago 7, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. It's been playing on Netflix since October and is now winning many award nominations. Rennie and his friends criticized his portrayal in the film as a nerdy guy concerned mostly with not offending his girlfriend's conservative parents. 
He said, quote, I feel sorry for Tony Award winner Alex Sharp, who played me, close quote. But he nevertheless urged people to see the film because its theme was the value of protest and the necessity of speaking truth to power. In the trial, five of the defendants were convicted of inciting a riot and sentenced to five years in prison. The verdicts were overturned on appeal. After that, Rennie went on to organize a much bigger and more amazing anti-war protest, although it's much less known, the May Day protest in Washington, D.C. in 1971. The slogan was, Stop the War or We'll Stop the Government. After mass civil disobedience there, more than 12,000 people were arrested. It was the largest mass arrest in American history. After that, Rennie went in a puzzling direction. Briefly, he became a follower of an Indian boy guru. But for the last few years, he's been working on creating a network of intentional communities in response to climate change. I spoke with Rennie a couple of months ago for a Nation magazine event, and he talked about his trip to North Vietnam in 1967. I was in a bomb shelter in North Vietnam where, where we were in utter blackness while we could hear American you know, bombs going off in Hanoi, okay? And basically they were trying to, you know, our Vietnamese hosts were trying to, you know, I guess entertain us or something. So they read news accounts. And, and in, that, in the news accounts of one day, they, they announced that uh, the Democratic Party was holding its convention in Chicago. And they said, oh, aren't you from Chicago? <laughs> so, so that's actually, it was there that I learned about the, the Democratic Convention. It was there that I made the decision, I am going to Chicago. Rennie Davis on this show last September. He died on February 2nd. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener. Talking about politics, thinking about the left. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. KPFK's General Manager is Aniel Zuberi-Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.